Hey everyone, Eric Renier here, and welcome to the 64th episode of the RIT Podcast. Alberta has a new premier this week, after Danielle Smith won the United Conservative Party leadership last Thursday. She defeated former Finance Minister Travis Taves on the sixth and final ballot with 54% support to 46% for Taves. Smith faces a crucial few months ahead of her. She tries to put her stamp on her new government before the province goes to the polls in the election that is scheduled for May, less than eight months from now. She first will have to get into the legislature as she doesn't have a seat. But after just a few days in the job, she's already facing some controversy. Joining me this week to chat about all the latest developments in Alberta, I'm joined again by Elise Von Scheel, politics reporter with the CBC in Calgary. Hello, Elise. Hi. So, yeah, it's been a, kind of a week. I, I mean, the leadership race itself was a bit quiet, right? It was a lot of focus just on Danielle Smith and whatever she was proposing. None of the other candidates were really able to impose themselves. Um, but then all of a sudden for the last week, it's been uh, fireworks a little bit. It has been. And if the leadership race was the appetizer, now we are into dinner. Uh, so we are starting to see exactly what Daniel Smith said she was going to do. We haven't really seen a lot of pivots, maybe clarifications. And in, in the case of the controversy that you alluded to, definitely a clarification. But uh, yeah, whereas there may not have been anything super surprising or maybe fireworks that made the leadership race more competitive, really, uh, it, it was it was basically done after Stampede. We didn't really see anything that, that shook things up too much uh, since since the first or second week of July. Now what we are starting to see is Danielle Smith is now in a position where she uh, has to, according to the membership, implement what she was running on. And that's where we are starting to see some of these uh, some of these fireworks or some of this controversy that you had mentioned. Yeah, we'll get into the details of it in a bit. Yeah. So just to, let's just go back to the leadership race for a second. Uh, so Smith ended up winning, which is what everybody expected. It ended up being maybe a little bit closer than some expected. Um, what do you think happened on Thursday? Was there any were there any reactions to the results? Uh, were people surprised? Uh, you know, maybe that she didn't get as much of the Brian Jean vote as people might have thought. Were there any reactions to the actual results? The interesting thing was watching the Taves camp as the the votes were coming in. So Smith ended up winning on a sixth ballot, which was as far as it could possibly go. It just finished up with her and Travis Taves at the end. And so I think as you watch candidates start to drop off and we saw how the vote was splitting up between the other candidates as we got down the ranked ballot, uh, the Taves camp was letting out some uh, some interesting noises. One's not necessarily of defeat, but like, oh, okay, 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 we're watching, we're paying attention. Um, and it did end up being pretty close, like Smith won with just under 54% of the vote. Uh, so it was not a, a Polyev win, it was not a landslide like we saw with the their federal cousins. Um, but in terms of surprises, maybe the only surprise was how many ballots it took to get there. Other than that, everybody really, I think, for a long time has been anticipating a Smith win. The, cr- the crowd went crazy. Like, like she had the room. Even before she won, uh, she had the, the room. And um, her, her victory speech was another example of this, where she talked about all of the things that she talked about during the leadership race, right? I love freedom. I hate Ottawa. Uh, and those themes were, were reestablished in her, her victory speech, as well as uh, talking about what she wants to focus on now going forward. Talked a lot about mental health, talked a lot about dealing with inflation and economic issues. Um, 
But really, the, the biggest cheer during her victory speech was when she dropped the line that we will no longer let Ottawa, we will no longer let politicians tell us what to put in our bodies. Uh, so, you know, moving forward, she has an entire province to govern. She has an entire government to run. But a lot of those sentiments that are really getting the attention uh, from the party members are still around COVID and are still around kind of breaking Alberta a little bit more free away from Ottawa. It's an interesting contrast because when Pierre Poiliev won his first speech and the days after it, you know, he wasn't talking about the things that had uh, people talking during the leadership race. You know, he wasn't talking about Bitcoin or, or uh, COVID or anything like that. He was focusing on inflation. He was focusing on these issues that are more set towards the general population. But he had Daniel Smith in her victory speech and in the days after her, still focusing on the lightning rods of controversy about the Alberta Sovereignty Act, about uh, COVID-19 restrictions. So, like you said, there's not much of a pivot here. No, and and she had said just as much. Uh, she was talking to the Globe and Mail a couple of, I guess it was the week before, uh, before the leadership, and she said, for those of you expecting a pivot, it's not coming. Uh, we will see. Seven months until the next election is a long time, but she she purposefully kept her campaign during the leadership race really small. Um, not a lot of promises to fulfill or disappoint people on if they do or don't get done. It allows for a lot more leniency in terms of your, your your policy direction and breadth once you're actually in government. So the the things that we watched her talk about were COVID, no more lockdowns, uh, enshrining vaccine choice into Alberta's human rights code, uh, basically putting it on the same level as things like not allowing discrimination against somebody based on their race or sexual orientation. Now she plans to add vaccine status into that uh, and has been vague enough that it's not just COVID vaccines. We're talking like you can't discriminate on somebody if they haven't had a polio, influenza, like any of these other types of vaccines. So that, the Sovereignty Act, which again, we saw clarification on her, um, one of the people who was running her campaign, who's now going to be in her premier's office, uh, Robbie Anderson, basically said, we will respect Supreme Court rulings. They had been vague enough on the language. They had just said, if a court passes something we don't like or a court gives a ruling we don't like, we decide what to do after that. Now this week, they've clarified that the Supreme Court would would take supremacy over any kind of sovereignty act. But like the first couple of days, right, we're in what, day three, four, like first week for sure. It's been lots of clarifications, uh, lots of adjustments, but no no hardcore pivot, no dropping of any policy that we saw her uh, espouse during the leadership race. Yeah, who knew the Supreme Court was supreme? Um, so right? just, uh, you know, not you, in the name at all. <laughs> no, it's just it's just the window dressing. But uh, not pivoting is, you know, obviously something that people were expecting. Uh, but there is a general election not very far away, right? So it, it is going to be something that she's going to have to face. But in a column uh, was Rick Bell that I was looking at today. You know, she was saying that all she needs to do is win the thirty nine seats that she has in the rural areas and just a couple more in the cities, and that's it. Uh, she seems to be very worried about uh, other parties because she said when the rural areas are upset, that's when new parties come up and, and the vote is divided. So, you know, this is the United Conservative Party, the old progressive conservatives, the old Wildrose, which she used to lead. So far, does the party look united behind her? At this point, yes. And even the the MLAs who endorsed other candidates in the leadership race, 
the ones that I've talked to have expressed a willingness to, to see what she does. Let's give her a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months to see exactly how she is running things, what she's proposing, how she's going to do it. But she, she's talked about wanting to take a page out of former Premier Ralph Klein's book and, and govern caucus that way. She's talked to the membership about, you know, being being their voice and wanting to reflect their concerns. And of course, like the, the ghost of Jason Kenney, who was basically turfed by the, the grassroots, is still floating around the legislature halls, right? Like he he's still there. The cautionary tales of the difficulties that he had in governing that exact caucus and that exact membership, pretty much, um, they are still there for her. And unity was a huge theme in the leadership race. All the candidates talked about it. You know, they, they take jabs at the other candidates and then say, but hey, guys, like at the end of this, we all have to govern a province together. We would really like to win the next election. Uh, and, and even in her victory speech, she brought it up. She said it is not the time to be fighting. If, if we want to make sure the NDP doesn't win in 2023, if we want to make sure the federal government doesn't have extra leverage against Alberta, it, it's our job as conservatives to move past this. And she said, and, and, and I'm going to be the example of that. I'm going to lead by example. The slate is wiped clean. Any grievances we had within the party, anybody who wronged me or slighted me, um, that is going to be wiped clean. And she hearkened back to her her floor crossing, right, when she left the Wild Rose for, for the PCs and said, you as the membership have given me a second chance. I will not let you down. Now it's time to unify. You mentioned the ghost of Jason Kenney. There is also the ghosting by Jason Kenney of <laughs> Daniel Smith, right? Because Well played, well played. <laughs> yes, thank you. She said that she reached out to him, but he didn't return her call. And she was very um, diplomatic, in her answer to that question and very lenient with him. She said, you know, he's had a difficult time. It's been hard. I think he just needs some time to adjust. And hopefully we will be able to have that conversation. The interesting thing, though, is that Jason Kenney had talked about wanting to secure this orderly transition of power, which is also kind of a strange thing, considering like it's the same government, like the same party. Normally, it's not, you, re- it's not rebels storming a capital, and there's right. Be an it's not <laughs> rebels storming a capital. It's not handing the keys over to Rachel Notley. So th- this orderly transition of power was kind of odd phrasing, and we we all kind of scratched our heads, uh, all of us journalists and pundits, going, like, why would he consider that necessary? And then he wouldn't take her phone calls. So I, I guess. I don't know what happened to that uh, orderly transition of power, but uh, she's kept a lot of staff and a lot of people in senior positions who had ties to Jason Kenney. So there are still that olive branch extension, that unity piece. She has incorporated that into her staffing decisions. Uh, Erica Barudis, who's a former UCP party president, who's very close to Kenney, is now Daniel Smith's principal secretary. Um She's keeping a lot of the chiefs of staff on or trying to in a lot of those ministries for some continuity. We'll see what her cabinet picks look like uh, in the next, I guess we're about a week out. Um, we'll see what those look like. But uh, it uh, it's not the complete overhaul burning to the ground and then, you know, crushing the ashes even smaller of Jason Kenney's establishment, right? She's gone in and has said a couple of things she's going to overhaul and do differently. Um, but it is it is not a complete uh, rewrite, at least at this point. Right. It's not a hostile takeover of the party, at least not yet. No, not at this point. 
Right. So her first uh, uh, press conference, I guess, as premier uh, got a lot of attention, not only in Alberta, but probably across the country. Uh, You mentioned it, how she had said how uh, the people who she had seen in her lifetime who had been the most discriminated against were people who had chosen not to get the vaccine. Um, And, you know, there was a lot of negative reaction about that, uh, with the obvious reaction being that there's plenty of people who have faced uh, a lot of discrimination and not because of their choices. And she must have seen that this was a problem because, what, a day later, there's a letter and she is rolling it back a little bit. Yeah, cl- clarifying. She said, uh, it, it, I didn't mean to basically trivialize what other people had gone through. It, it was not an apology. There was no I'm sorry. Um, but there was a pledge to to learn from those minority communities that she she had pointed out. But here it was her first test. She'd literally been premier for four hours and this happened. Um, she has been talking to a very, very small segment of Albertans. Three and a half percent of the population, 14 and up, in Alberta own a UCP membership. Like, this much of Alberta. And that's who decided uh, that she was going to become the leader of the party. And then because of the democratic process in the place that we live in, she becomes the premier. But she was running that race for those people, for that 3.5 percent of Alberta and was able to tailor her message according to that. It was her first chance to speak to all Alberta broadly. And she got a lot of questions that she was probably expecting on the Sovereignty Act and things like that. And and so this was the first time we saw her test her messaging with the broader population. And this was the feedback that, that came back. And so she's, she's now, now that she is premier and party leader, but premier, um, she is figuring out this barometer for what the public has an appetite for. And what the public has an appetite for, we know from polling, is very different than what UCP members talked about uh, being a priority in the leadership race. Like broadly, if, if you look at, at polling that's been done by like people like Janet Brown and, and Angus Reid, uh, UCP members also care about inflation. They also care about health care. And those are kind of like the, the two predominant concerns for the general public. But when you're talking to them in a leadership race, the context is different than if you're asking what's top of mind in your general life a little bit. So this is now Danielle Smith getting a taste of what uh, what concerns people, what uh, rubs people the wrong way. And I think that's why we saw that clarification is that there was an understanding or a recognition that um, that what she said was not uh, in line with what I think a lot of people would understand as established history, uh, including the fact that like we had residential schools in Alberta 30 something years ago, not 50 something, right? Right. Within the lifetime of, of Daniel Smith. With, right? Yeah, within uh, my lifetime, basically. Yes, well, yeah, within ours. I'm, yeah, I'm not 50. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, you know, it was her first opportunity for a lot of Albertans, uh, you know, who might not be following politics that much. They might remember her. And obviously, she's been around for a long time in ra- talk radio, and she's been a, a figure in, in, in Alberta for some time. But as a first opportunity for a lot of people to say, well, maybe I'll give her a chance might have been a little bit of a trip up for her. Uh, You did mention the Alberta Sovereignty Act and how they're going to uh, abide by the Supreme Court. Um, This is still going to be a main 
issue for Daniel Smith in the UCP, uh, fighting against Ottawa, which is usually a good a good tactic in an Alberta election. But yeah. how far are they willing to go with this? We still have yet to see. Honestly, people ask me all the time, the Sovereignty Act, what, what Sovereignty Act? What version of it? We've heard so many different things. And so she didn't come up with the idea. This, this came out of a, an academic kind of think tank um, in a part of a larger proposal called the Free Alberta Strategy. And one of the people who wrote that is now on her, her, uh, in her premier's office. But that version, the original version as it existed, was supposed to be unconstitutional, blatantly and inarguably unconstitutional because the the authors wanted to kind of provoke this constitutional angst to get a conversation going more broadly about what was fair in federalism and what was fair in confederation. Daniel Smith likes the, the, the base of the idea, adopts it in the leadership race, but the entire time maintains that it will be constitutional. And her argument is, is that the sections already exist within the Constitution to, to do this. She thinks it's section, you know, 91 through 95. I've probably heard her say that like 180 times. Um, so it would be constitutional. But then, of course, like if you really boil it down, the Sovereignty Act at its core wants to empower Alberta to ignore court rulings or legislation from the federal government that it deems uh, to intrude on provincial jurisdiction or to be counter to the interests of Alberta. And like you get into a whole quagmire here, right? Because laws passed in Canada are, are presumed constitutional and they are, you know, they are that way until a court declares them not. Legislatures cannot declare a law, a federal law, unconstitutional. It's, it's up to a court. So like, I don't know exactly, we don't know the wording, we don't know what this draft legislation would look like, but if a version of that goes into it, it's pretty hard to see how you are going to fit this unconstitutional peg in a constitutional hole. Um, because, like, Canada has, is, is a system of constitutional supremacy. Like, that is, that is the highest kind of bar that, that we go by. So, you know, there's also been some talk from from caucus that they certain members wouldn't want to support uh, or vote for legislation that would be unconstitutional. Alberta's lieutenant governor has said just as much. She's called herself a constitutional fire extinguisher and has basically said, if legislation lands on my desk for royal assent, uh, that is unconstitutional. I would have to take a look at that and see what to do next. And, and there's a couple different things that could happen. The LG could refer it up to, you know, the, the governor general, federal cabinet, basically. Um, or she could just straight up refuse to grant it royal assent, which I think has never happened in Canada before. Definitely not in Alberta. Um, so, like, you can see how all of these paths branch off depending on what the Sovereignty Act actually looks like. Or they could you know, bring it into law, not proclaim it, or proclaim it and then never use it. Like, I, I could write you a list that would, on a scroll, roll out the door of my office <laughs> as to, like, the list of possibilities as to what could happen with the Sovereignty Act. So that's an incredibly long way to say I have absolutely no idea how far they're willing to take this. And, uh, and that is one of the questions that remains. And we know she wants to bring it in herself and... Um, and table it herself and she doesn't have a seat right now so we're you know at least six weeks away from probably seeing any version of the sovereignty act land on a legislature desk there won't be enough time really to get to the end of that story by an election i i 
know, the Supreme Court doesn't exactly move very quickly uh, or these, you know, and it goes through various appeals and all these kinds of things. So like the idea that this could get resolved between now and May when the election is scheduled, I mean, it ends up being a good maybe political thing, uh, electoral thing, if this is still kind of hanging over her. Though a lot of people don't like it as well. There's been polling about the idea of the Alberta Sovereignty Act and it doesn't poll very well. People don't like that kind of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll see what's going to happen. But, you know, uh, there has been times when the, you know, the governor general, lieutenant governor uh, and various provinces have disagreed on things. But, you know, that's usually in the 1920s or the 1930s, you know, when there was uh, uh, legislation from the social credit government in the 30s that was disallowed, yep. but because it was uh, blatantly uh, not constitutional. So, you know, we're just going a long way back when, to find precedent for when, uh, you know, these kinds of things uh, came to a head. So I yeah. guess we'll but see. She can, she can wait, right? Like how long did the reference cases for the carbon tax and for the Environmental Assessment Act, C-69, how long did that take, right? And that has provided political fodder for governments in Alberta for a very long time, uh, for years, right? And so you know, they, they don't necessarily need a win at any level of court in order to make this a good political football for UCP members going forward. So, I, I mean, like, she could bring it in and, and reap benefits from people who, uh, in the party, who would acknowledge it as a promise kept long before she has to stand in front of anybody at the Supreme Court and justify this piece of legislation. Yeah, and she seems to, would ha- uh, seems to have an ally in Scott Moe who's coming out recently with uh, their own sort of positioning about how Saskatchewan can protect itself typical, from the, uh, uh, Yeah, typical yeah. Saskatchewan, right? Like, Mo actually started talking about this last year and is now only really, like, pushing it or, like, getting attention for it now that Daniel Smith has done it. So poor typical Saskatchewan does something before Alberta, and it's only when Alberta does something that people start recognizing. Right. <laughs> uh, well, talk about one more issue that was brought up. Uh, this is a reform to the uh, Alberta Health S- uh, Service in Alberta, you know, uh, firing Dina Hinshaw, uh, the me- chief medical officer out in Alberta. Um, again, this is a lot about the pandemic and COVID-19. It doesn't seem to me that it's a thing a lot of people care about anymore, aside from the very core of the of her backers. And uh, But why... Why something like this still looking back rather than looking forward? Because I think a lot of people, especially in rural Alberta, which is, as we mentioned earlier, is where she's hoping will will form kind of the foundation of any government that she she wants to try to win or stay in uh, next May. A lot of people in those areas, it's it's not a thing of the past. People are still talking about this. Like I, I went down to southern Alberta um, during the leadership race because I wanted to talk to these people who are, are going to be there like you know, it was well over half of of people who voted in the UCP leadership race are outside of Edmonton and Calgary. So, you know, I went south and one of my colleagues kind of went northwest to, to two really, really strong UCP areas. Uh, it's It's not being spoken about in past tense lexicon. It is still uh, very much on people's minds. And even if it's not necessarily uh, COVID specifically, the virus I'm talking about it COVID situationally provided an illustration for a lot of these people for what they felt was extreme government overreach and uh so it it just it's a marker for them not so much that you know the virus was the issue but the issue was that the government seemed willing to as they put it infringe on their freedoms and and this is 
this is Danielle Smith's kind of bread and butter. She's a libertarian, and a lot of people in these areas are, are small C conservatives and, and would also probably share some of those those libertarian values. But again, like th- this is what Danielle Smith is going to have to confront, is that 124,000 people don't get you elected in a general election. The seat math for her uh, and the UCP is a lot easier than it is for the NDP. Um, just the way that, that things shake out with support and some of the close ridings and things like that. The, the NDP can be ahead in popular support in polling um, and still have a much, much harder path to, to getting that majority. Um, so I, I think it will be interesting to see what, what Danielle Smith does going forward and if she continues to talk about uh, to talk about COVID, you know, we talked about her not really going in and flipping over the table completely, but where she is flipping the table over completely is uh, is in healthcare. She wants to fire the board of AHS and basically restructure the way that the province leads its healthcare um, before the end of the year. She talked about uh, getting different medical advice. She was asked if, if Dr. Dina Hinshaw would be kept in place, and she said she would be, yeah, I will get new advice on public health. So she was going to appoint a different, uh, a different board to, to advise her on the public health scene. And so those are two ginormous changes. Like Alberta Health Services is tens of thousands of employees and billions of dollars. It is not a small uh, adjustment to start going in and tweaking there. But basically what she says is she wants to run it like a private business. That if you go as a board and ask uh, management to do something in the private sector and management doesn't get it done, you will go and find people who will get it done. And that, that is exactly the example she used for how she wants to change things uh, at Alberta Health Services. So that will be a big change. The amendment to the Human Rights Act that we already talked about to, to enshrine vaccine choice as a protected status uh, will also be a, a big change. And so it's kind of those two and the Sovereignty Act. And those are really the only things we've heard her concretely say and talk about. But they are achievable and attainable promises to, uh, to signal to her membership that she is able to get things done and that she is able to achieve what she promised, which was a huge problem for Jason Kenney in the fact that the, the, the membership didn't feel like he had kept his promises. So it's this is a full plate for what is what we got six months or so before an election begins. You have, you know, the holiday break over there. You have a budget that you have to put together probably yep. before the next election. Uh, that's not a lot of time. <laughs> It's going to be super busy. They have like 50 candidates left to nominate for the election. She doesn't have a seat in the legislature yet. They're um, they're going into a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat where she's uh, proclaimed herself the candidate, which she's allowed to do. Um, so she'll, I think that vote is on November 8th. And then with, you know, process and appeal periods afterwards, the earliest she can get in is like November 29th. So the legislature. So we could have a crazy busy four week sitting so she can table a sovereignty act and then come back after Christmas. And I, I mean, it's a short period of time. But honestly, the election machine for both parties is already already running. They've got their uh, each of them have their conventions, their annual general meetings next weekend. Um, and it's all focused on Are election they in readiness. Deer? Are they in Red Deer? <laughs> They're not. Oh. Everybody avoided that. The uh, interestingly, the UCP is up in Edmonton, and the NDP is down in Calgary. So, oh, it's a bizarre uh, world, right? Like, 
dueling conventions. Um, so no, make no mistake, everybody is already focused well into the future on May, and uh, we'll we'll have lots and lots and lots of busy weeks in between. Uh, we'll we'll uh, try to wrap it up, I guess, quickly. Uh, but you mentioned the Brooks Medicine Hat by-election. Uh, no chance that the USB is not going to win that. They won that by a huge margin last time. Uh, but what there is also another vacancy in Calgary Elbow, which is you know an urban riding, what maybe a more challenging one for the UCB to hold. Uh, but that's going to stay vacant. The Brooks Medicine Hat, which was vacant for what a couple of days, that's having <laughs> by election. Uh, are people upset at all that Cal- the the good the good people of Calgary Elbow will continue to go without representation? I think I think it depends on who you ask, right? The UCP said we we didn't want the or Daniel Smith said we didn't want the expense of a by-election there. The the duties of the MLA have been passed on to somebody in the neighboring riding. That MLA is taking care of it. The NDP are furious, uh, and that's because they they worked to have a, a really strong candidate and uh, polling looks okay for them there. It's it's a Calgary more inner city riding. Um, Danielle Smith has said she wanted to run in a rural riding. She had originally uh, declared her intention to run for the nomination in a riding just south of Calgary, which is where she lives. Um, but, you know, I, I think for people who look at that, it's an indication of the difficulties that the UCP is going to have in Calgary going into a general election. And, and we go back to that seat math and, and the column that you talked about in the Calgary Sun today. Um, Danielle Smith seems to be pretty uh, aware that Calgary is going to be difficult and she seems a little bit sanguine about losing a good chunk of the seats uh, that they do hold in Calgary. But the way that the seat math works, they they can actually stand to lose some in Calgary, not all of Calgary. Um, but her focus will be on keeping those 39 out of 41 rural seats that the UCP hold right now. The NDP is going to most likely dominate in Edmonton. And it's really going to come down to, to a handful of ridings in Calgary. So I don't know. I don't know if Calgary Elbow is going to be a bit of like a like a bellwether in, in the next election. But given how they've been treating it so far, one party really wanting one and the other party not wanting to touch it, uh, Calgary will definitely be interesting. Calgary is always the problem. Calgary always throws a wrench into the math. <laughs> Calgary yeah, decides the election. So it, it, it'll still be in May? Yeah, the no election will still be early. this. This is your closing question all the time. No, we don't think she's. We have asked her. She's not going early. She has promised, at least as far as we know, as far as she has said at this point, we are uh, not going early. And the good people of Calgary Elbow will uh, have will have to share an MLA until May. Yeah, well, you know, maybe this is you know they could uh, car, uh, riding pool. You know, just instead of carpooling, <laughs> just. We can just do that, and we can all just share MPs and MLAs and, uh, and uh, I save would, some money. Uh, I'd hate to be the constituency assistant in Calgary Acadia, which is helping out in, with Calgary Elbow right now. That, that would be a lot of mail. <laughs> yeah, that would be. All right. Well, we'll see if that promise uh, made will be a promise kept, but it'll be a couple months before we'll find that out. So, Elise, um, you know, Alberta keeps on giving when it comes to politics. So, uh, so thanks for joining, joining me again. My pleasure. Do you care about the big stuff but hate politics? Yes. I guess. I don't care, really. Is your name Jesse? And yep. My name is Reese. Yes. And this is Canadian Politics is Boring. It is. We have had 200 episodes of endless fun. We've talked about every subject you could imagine. New stuff, old stuff, Pierre Polyev stealing chicken fingers. We talk about some crazy past politicians. Mackenzie King used to get literal advice on how to run the country from seances. And we even have a whole 
brand of erotic fiction between Jason Kenny and Bigfoot. That's right, we do. So this is not your typical Canadian politics <laughs> How did I show. Forget that. Canadian politics is boring. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's Canadian politics is boring, which it is, and I hate this stuff so much. In British Columbia, municipal elections will be going ahead on Saturday. So if you live in BC, don't forget to cast a ballot. There's a number of interesting races across the province, particularly in Vancouver and Surrey, and I'll go over some of those results next week. Last week, I posted the first edition of what I'm calling the Grenier Political Report, a bit of a play on the Cook Political Report in the U.S. These reports are my best estimates of where an upcoming election stands, and they will be published at regular intervals. My intention is to publish these reports roughly one year, 100 days, and 50 days ahead of scheduled elections with yearly reports for the upcoming federal election. Last week, I looked at Prince Edward Island, which is scheduled to go to the polls next year. On Monday, I'll be looking at Manitoba. You can head to therit.ca to check them out. All right, that'll be it for this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.